So this was a big week for our church. It was a big week for me too, personally. I started my last ever class of seminary, which I'm very thrilled about. And I, I've had like, you guys have heard of senioritis, you know, where you just sort of are moving on in your head and you're ready to graduate. And I, uh, I found myself this year having a, a pretty um, significant dose of senioritis. And so I'm in this last class and I'm thrilled. And actually, I'm really excited for this class because it's called Church and Culture. And really, you know, how do we respond to the, the, the culture? How do we respond to cultures and different cultures? And I love the professor, but he's, you know, like professors are like, they're interesting breeds of people. Um, and they have interesting, you know, interesting humor. And this guy, he starts off the class and he goes, I, I want you guys to know something really important. If you don't remember anything today, remember this. And I'm like, oh, wow. He's coming right out of the gate, strong. Commas save lives. <laughs> and I, I'm like, what did he say? Commas save lives. And it's total nerdery. Like, like I, get you, I wouldn't be surprised if he has like a shirt that says this. Commas save lives. And he put up on the screen this sentence. Let's eat, comma, grandma. <laughs> and he goes, watch what happens when you take the comma away. Let's eat grandma. <laughs> Big difference, comma, save lives. Because on one hand, you're talking about cannibalism. On the other hand, you're just talking about a lovely meal with a woman you love and adore, right? And his point um, was this, is that it's often small little details, small little things that uh, can lead to dramatic change. In this case, you have this small little, you know, pronunciation, grammar, like comma, that completely changes the sentence from good to really ugly and dark. But the point is uh, that the professor was trying to make, and what I want to look at today, because I think the Bible is kind of full of these moments, is there's often seemingly minor moments or, or like times in our life where we make decisions where they might look small. We might not pay a ton of at attention to, to those, those moments, but over time they have dramatic effect on our life. One of my uh, favorite books is um, called Atomic Habits. I don't know if any of you guys have read this, this book, but, you know, we are a collection people. Are a, like a, we're a collection of habits. Like, we are habitual beings. And, you know, a lot of us are looking at ourselves and going, I need to change things. Like, I want to see things change in my life, and, and there's habits that I want to see uh, change. And I think a lot of times we, we kind of look at the, the macro, like I'm going to, and this is me, I'm such an all or nothing person. I'll look at something that, that, that I want to change. Like I want to lose some weight. Okay. I will go so all in like, you know, to the extreme, extreme exercise, extreme, uh, you know, diet. And it can work. It does work for a time, but for sustainable change, it doesn't work super well. And the idea behind this book, Atomic Habits, is what if you looked at the, the sort of the micro, like the little changes that might seem to you as very minor um, that over time could lead to, to dramatic change. And uh, at one point in the book, he says, 
that if a person aims to be 1% better, just 1% better every single day, over the span of the year, you will become 37% like better or changed. Like it, it, it multiplies that much over time. Just 1%. And that might mean just instead of going all out on making a change, you just make a minor change and it makes all the difference. And the Bible has all of these stories where um, it, it, it talks about the miraculous and these, these, these big moments. And they are big and they are miraculous and they are amazing and they are life-changing. But there's also these moments sort of hidden in the shadows of these miraculous moments, these seemingly small moments or, or people that aren't, like, the, the star of the show. Like, they're a supporting actor that we sometimes miss out on what God is doing in their life. Or the small change or the small decision that they made that led to dramatic change. And I want to share with you one of those stories today that I think can sometimes get lost in the big story of Easter. Christ's last week, Christ's death, and Christ's resurrection. And it is Palm Sunday, and it's Triumphal Sunday. And um, we are celebrating that. But I'm going to move a, a little bit further in the story to the, to the moment where Christ is on the cross, suffering and dying, because there's an interaction that he has with, with two other men that are dying that I think sometimes seemingly can get lost in the bigger story. Um, and yet... It's profound because we see dramatic life change, forever eternal change in, 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 an, in a man who makes a seemingly small decision. Let me read for you Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews... Save yourself. There was a written notice above him, which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. I think it's easy for us when we, when we spend this week and we read these texts, um, we might lose sight of this life-changing moment for this man on the cross who seemingly says two words that change everything. Remember me. Jesus, just remember me. And what if 
today, you, um, you could experience life change, dramatic, eternal life change in a real powerful way. And it doesn't, it doesn't come in the form of you giving or saying, I'm going to go to church and join this church, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to fix my life and, and start to practice, you know, implement all these spiritual practices, and I'm just going to become a good person. What if instead you made this simple act of faith to say to Jesus, remember me? Because I want to show you ultimately what this man has recognized in himself and what he's recognized in Jesus. And it changed his trajectory forever. The reality is we know very little about these two men that are dying next to Jesus. I find it really interesting as I've thought about this this last week, these two men. You know, crucifixion was often done in like clusters. The Romans had gotten really good at this. They become, um, once they were introduced, as the Roman Empire started to expand, at one point they were introduced to crucifixion and they started to practice it. And over a span of 400 years, the Romans became the best at crucifixion. The Romans were, were professional executioners. They wanted to maximize a person's suffering before their death, and crucifixion did just that. I was reading um, in Germany in the 1960s, they, want, they, they did a study on crucifixion. Of course, they didn't actually crucify someone, but they, they, they hung people from crosses with their wrists tied. And while they did that, they checked their breathing and their heart rate to see what would happen. Within minutes, as those people were tied, their heart rate doubled, their ability to, to get air and breathe became labored. Their blood pressure plummeted. And the, the, the experiment had to end after th at, before 30 minutes from the pain, the anxiety, the problems. So imagine six hours with nails in your hands, in your feet. It was, it was, it was torturous. And the Romans were good at it, but it, it's interesting because they only used it, it was actually somewhat sparingly. I mean, the Romans, it was so cruel and so shameful to kill someone with, by, by crucifixion that they didn't even do it to, the, to their own people. The Roman people would have, been, would have been killed in other ways. And, and it's interesting because... Usually the Romans would bring in a bunch of people that, that they were going to execute and have them hung on a cross. But here's this moment where Jesus, and it happened relatively quickly if you think about the story. He's arrested, he's tried unfairly, and he's executed the next day. They put, there's two people, two other men that are crucified with him. Why is it, and this is what I was thinking about this last week, is there meaning or purpose behind that? Why isn't there like a larger group or just Jesus by himself? Like, might there be a reason that there's two men on each side of him? And I don't know for sure. But as I reflected at it, I, I, I sort of wondered, like, do those two men, like, represent, like, the two, there's two types of people in the world? People who recognize their sin and their need for, for something different, for a savior, for something to save them, and people who don't. Because that makes all the difference. But here's what we know about these men, while not knowing a whole lot. 
When we read the Bible in our English, uh, you know, we get criminal is like the best word we could come up with. And I, 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 criminal is a vague term. It could mean all sorts of things. So what, did, what, what in fact did these men do to, to deserve death? It was more than just like petty criminal behavior where they, were, where, they, where they robbed somebody. There was a lot of other Roman rules and laws that were set in place to deal with petty behavior. If, if you were robbed or someone stole from you, oftentimes you were charged with a crime and you would have to pay retribution of four times the amount of what you stole from that person. It was never death. And even if you couldn't pay the, the, the four times to the, you know, retribution, often what would happen is you would get a harsher sentence where you would then become an indentured servant to that person till you paid off that crime. So these men are not just thieves. We, you know, we, we use that word, like thieves, the thieves on the cross. Like thieves did not get hung on Roman crosses. They did, they, they did something far worse because they were they were crucified and the likelihood is that these men were what we would call bandits which is old school for us we we think wild wild west but that's kind of what uh it looked like in israel and surrounding areas in the first century you know they didn't have cars they didn't have their modes of transportation was by foot and with animal and so traveling from one city to the next was a very dangerous proposition because of bandits. Um, there's excavators, archaeologists, who have found tombstones of people that died. And many tombstones uh, with the inscription, so-and-so killed by bandits. The, the top three ways to die in Jesus' time was illness, they didn't have medical, you know, medical advances like we do. Illness, of course. Old age, bandits was number three. And the Romans, they, they, they despised banditry. It was an endemic in the Roman Empire. Because it was often the, these bandits that were part of insurrection groups that wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. And that, if you wanted to get in trouble with the Roman Empire, you you would start a revolution. If you wanted to be executed by the Roman Empire, which I don't think anybody did, but you start an insurrection, or you try to start an insurrection. The Romans will deal with your thievery, your robbery, you know, like those sorts of things, but if you try to rise up and rebel against the Roman Empire, they will deal with you sternly and swiftly. And bandits were a problem, an endemic for the Roman Empire, because so many of these bandits were part of insurrection groups. So when you look at these two men on both sides of Jesus, we're not talking like petty thieves. We're talking about potentially revolutionaries. In fact, the NLT in Matthew's account calls them revolutionaries. And, and, and bandits that were likely doing... I don't even want to say, but you know the types of things that they were probably doing. It's some of the atrocities that we're seeing even to this day in the Ukraine. It's just sickening stuff. And if you were to walk around the Roman Empire in Jesus' day, you would have seen watchtowers around the Roman Empire. 
and military guards. And those were not there just to keep the people in line. They were there to do that, but they were also there to help and watch over people that were traveling because it was such an issue. So my, my point of all of this is don't just move, okay, these petty criminals, you know, on the cross next to Jesus. Like, these, these were men who, because they're being crucified, were, had, had done such atrocities and, and were a danger to the Roman Empire, were a danger to the well-being of the people, that they were being executed. And when it got to execution, it meant, you know, you, you, were, you were the worst of the worst. Which makes Jesus' execution, knowing this, even more profound than an innocent man would, would be put to death in this way. And it is precisely, now you can see how the Jewish religious leaders got Jesus executed. They said, they're... This man is leading a rebellion. Watch out. He has followers. He's growing more powerful. They knew. Like if they threw out, oh, he's, you know, telling lies or he's, he's stole or he did, you know, he did this or that, that it wasn't going to lead to crucifixion. But they knew if they could convince the Romans that this man was a danger to the empire, that would lead to his crucifixion. And that's precisely what they were able to convince the people and the Roman Empire, that Jesus was a danger. Little did they know that what they were doing was buying into the plan of revolution. <laughs> that it was actually Jesus' death that would spark a revolution that has impacted us today, those of us here in this space today. But the point is this, going back to the men on the cross. They deserved to be there, and Jesus didn't. And there's something about death. You know, we don't like to talk about it. We don't like to admit it, um, that it's, it's a part of every single person in this room. It is a part of our future. Um, and it's uncomfortable. But it's real, and it's going to happen. And one of the things that happens when people that we love die, or even if we find ourselves dying, is time begins to sort of slow down where we recognize, where we begin to recognize reality and, and things that are real and, and things that are most important. When you are on death's doorstep, you sort of, you don't care about the things that you once cared about. And the things that matter to you, or the things that, as you reflect, really matter, might be very different than what you think really matter about life right now. And it, it seems as if one of, these man, one of these men is having this sort of moment as he dies. These are, these are these last moment, the last moments of these two men's life. This is it. They know they're not getting off of that cross. And you just go, what is going through your mind during a slow, painful path to death? And one man you see, he's bitter. He's angry. And he mocks Jesus and he says, like, look, 
If you are, like, if you have the power, I've heard these stories, get us out of here. Save my skin. And the other man, in his reflection of this moment, he begins to see reality for what it really is, and he's able to see in his, in his heart who he really is. And he says, you know what? I deserve this. And you know what? So do you. The decisions I've made in this life, like, have put me here on this cross. And I'm a sinner. And I deserve this. But he does not. And I, I think there are two, and maybe this is oversimplifying things for you, but there are two, diff, there are two types of people in this world. People who are able to look at their weaknesses and their sin and recognize that they're broken and admit that they're broken and to say that I need someone to save me, to help me. And then there's people in the world who will refuse, even in their last moments of life, to admit that they did anything wrong or they deserve anything wrong and that if God can't you know, do for me what I want him to do, then I don't believe he you know, is who he says he is. It's a life of rebellion against the realities of the world and the realities of mankind and sin and the consequences of sin. Or there is the reality that things are broken and I'm broken. There's rebellion and there's humility. And one man can't get out of his rebellion and another man recognizes in his last moment in humility who he really is. And he says to Jesus, remember me. Is it not amazing that that man, in a manner of ours, walked into heaven with Jesus? You ever thought about that? Jesus says to me, today you will be with me in paradise. Do you realize what that man didn't do? I, through a, a, a number of circumstances that I don't even know who wrote this, but through a number of circumstances, it got to me through another person, through another person, through another person. And so I can't give credit to who wrote this, but I, I, I heard this this week, and I wanted to share it with you. Um, it says this, how does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? No baptism, no communion, no confirmation, no speaking in tongues, no mission trip, no volunteerism, and no church clothes. He couldn't even bend his knees to pray. He didn't say the sinner's prayer, and among other things, he was a thief. Jesus didn't take away his pain, heal his body, or smite the scoffers. Yet it was a thief who walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus, simply by believing. 
He had nothing more to offer other than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. No spin from brilliant theologians, no ego, no arrogance, no skinny jeans, shiny lights, or crafty words. No haze machine, donuts, or coffee in the entrance. Just a naked, dying man on a cross, unable to even fold his hands to pray. And I don't know about you, but that struck me because sometimes I, I look and I go, it is about what I do. It's about how good I am. And here's a man who couldn't even put his hands together to pray. And you think about being saved and you think about Jesus helping you, your mind might wander like, I've got to do this and I've got to make macro changes to my life. And yet here is this example of this man who doesn't even have time to do any of this stuff. He doesn't have a chance to be baptized, take communion, volunteer in church, or put skinny jeans on. And it's not that that stuff is wrong. It's not that the donuts or the coffee or the cool lights, like that, that stuff is wrong. And it's certainly like the spiritual practices that we engage in in this life. Baptism, communion, prayer, Bible study. That stuff certainly needs to be a part of our walking with Jesus. But it doesn't save you. Your church attendance, your volunteerism, your spiritual practices do not save you. Otherwise, this man had no chance. He had run out of time. Too bad. You had your chance. You had your time. But it's over. But it's this seemingly small moment where he just recognizes in faith that all he has to offer at this point is faith that Jesus is who he says he is. I believe you. You don't deserve this, but I do. And would you remember me when you go into your kingdom? And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. In a matter of hours, this man, this criminal, this bandit, this man who may have killed people and done all sorts of atrocities, this man who the Roman Empire hated and saw as a danger, to probably the better of, of, the, of, the, of the community. Maybe he was a revolutionary. This is the man that walks into heaven with Jesus. And I wonder if religion gets in the way of us walking with Jesus. And I wonder which criminal am I? Because I am one of them. I'm a sinner, and I deserve death. And the truth is, so do you. And which criminal am I? Am I the one on the side that's trying to self-justify, and I, I'm unwilling to, to admit, and unwilling to admit that I need help, or to open up and share my, my sin? Just, I am unwilling to recognize What's really going on and who I really am? And I blame shift. That's what we do, and we're really good at it. We just blame other people for our stuff. Or we put God to the test. 
fix it, God. You know, I'll follow you, but do this. Get me off of this cross. And then over here, you have a man in humility. He doesn't even ask Jesus to save him. He doesn't say, get me off the cross. He goes, I deserve this. I deserve to be here. And I, I wish I would have done things different, but I didn't. And I'm paying the consequence of my decisions in life. But Jesus, I need you to know that you don't deserve to be here. I'm guilty, you're not. But I've heard about you, and I've heard what you've said, and I've heard that you profess to be the Messiah. I've heard that you've spent time sharing meals with sinners and people like me. I've heard your teachings. I just want you to know that I can't get down and, and write a check to you and your ministry or follow you as a disciple or go preach. I can't even get down to bow to you and recognize you as king. But I want you to know that I believe you are who you say you are. And it's that, remember me that puts this man in the presence of God forever. He gets to be ushered into heaven with Jesus. <clears throat> so how does that shape your theology, which is a fancy word of what you believe? How could a seemingly small decision for you this morning to say, Jesus, I believe. Two words, I believe that you are who you say you are. Two words, I admit. The darkness in my life or what I've done or what I'm hiding. I admit I'm a sinner. And the thing that this story tells us is in, in our humility and the, the pain and the uneasiness that can come with that, Jesus does not turn from us. He looked that man in the eye and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And if you're willing to, to turn to Jesus, I want you to know he'll turn to you. And a seemingly small decision to say, I want to follow Jesus. I, I don't even know what communion is. I don't know what these fancy words that I hear in church I could never do what I see all these people doing. The thought of praying out loud, don't even begin. Let it all go. We're not inviting you into that. We're inviting you to follow Jesus. And he takes ragged sinners and does amazing things, life-changing things. So would you stand with me now and we're going we're gonna to sing and my invitation is not actually mine, it's Jesus's. He's saying to you, come follow me. And are you willing to say, I will? Are you willing to say, I need you? Are you willing to say, I admit? Because those seemingly small decisions or short sentences... <laughs> could make all the difference and change not only your life, but your eternity. So Holy Spirit, um, work, make, make yourself real to people in this room, particularly those who came with doubt. <clears throat>
um, and stir, become real in, in a powerful way to people. The enemy would want us to buy into belief that it is what we do and accomplish that saves us. And yet here is this miraculous story. Recognizing Jesus that you alone save. And all we can offer you is just faith. Our hearts, a decision to say yes to you. So Spirit, work in our hearts to make that decision if today's the day that we're going to seemingly make a small decision that could lead to dramatic eternal change. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh.